Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bulge in it. Inspired by your beauty. Effulgent. Yeah. Welcome to episode four of the Drew and Luke podcast, where each month I, Andy Luke, boost social media awareness of my rich creative empire and try to seduce you into paying me by creating a great free podcast about TV, films and comics that I adore. So this pod, it's paid for by the good folks at patreon.com forward slash Andy Luke and backed by the big banner at nerdgeist.com. This half hour, the second part of my look at season five of Angel, the serialized six hour movie from Hole in the World right through to Not Fade Away. This is a spoiler zone, daddy-o. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't care. In the Angel and its legacy, Stacey Abbott notes how Angel drew from a tapestry of classic examples of TV horror. Kolchak the Night Stalker, The X-Files and Millennium, as well as an established tradition of serialised, sympathetic vampire text. Reimer's Varney the Vampire, Rice's Vampire Chronicles, Curtis's Dark Shadow and Canadian TV series Forever Night. As covered last time, we open with our heroes working for the enemy, or rather hoping to mitigate the damage that they do. It's a very evil law firm, Wolfram and Hart, which Palmer and Slage described as mass-produced artifice, recessed lighting, polished wood, black trim, featherless... Ha, mistakes as metaphors, right? Featureless abstract paintings, and a set of plain vases in muted metallic red, blue and green which traps a detective hero of film noir in the psychological and architectural labyrinth of the city. Roz Kavney in her essay Schrodinger's Angel in Slage, Volume 4, offers an overview of Season 5 by way of character. The major arc of the fifth season is, of course, that of its central character. The other core characters have accepted to deal with Wolfram and Hart from a combination of idealism and conceit, believing that they can make a difference from the inside and delighted by the shiny new toys they are offered. Knowledge for Wesley, a laboratory for Fred, a sense of self-worth for Gunn, limitless showbiz power for Lorne. Angel knows from the beginning that he has taken the deal, primarily in order to save Connor and Cordelia, and that he has betrayed his friends by altering their memories. He has reason to suspect that he has been tricked by his worst enemies, and no way, because of the memory wipe, of fully discussing this with his friends. His arc is that of a wise fool, who learns loyalty to his friends through trial and error, a saviour constantly needing redeemed. The advanced notice of the show's cancellation allowed time to structure a genuine narrative game-changer. 
The eight-part story arc under showrunner David Greenwalt kicks off with Hole in the World, written and directed by creator Joss Whedon. It opens with Fred and Wesley's relationships. After two years of flirting with viewers, now very much in love, Gunn is singing. He's a street warrior feeling he has graduated university. Big Square Angel, who is about to teamwork journey rather than the hero's journey, offers a directionless spike a job, which will solve their problems of each other. The first 15 minutes settle us in with the characters adopting a new confidence and finding hope. Then into Angel Investigation's world of existential absurdity comes tragedy, scorching and cutting, a goosebump popper. I breathed some old mummy dust, had to make sure I didn't discover any new germs. You all right? They shooed me right off, mummy free. Good. I was hoping to take you out tomorrow night. No, I don't feature you wrapped in bandages. Take me out where? Can it be a secret? Oh, sheesh. Get a balcony, you two, huh? You'll still find me for lunch, though, right? I'll just look where the sun shines. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy. The warnings, all the threats about Wolfram and Hart pay off in a terrifying horror show, even if the firm is only responsible by association. They really are shits. Wolfram and Hart has ties to the fictional corporation Yo-Yo-Dine, which first appeared in the novel V in 1963, and to the corporation Wayland yutani from the Alien and Predator franchises. Thanks, Wikipedia. Angel, what exactly is happening to her? You talked to the doctor. They have something? Yeah, I, uh, some parasitic agent is working its way through. I mean, as near as they can tell... Get to the point. Her organs are cooking. In a day's time, they'll liquefy. It's Amy Acker who dominates this arc and takes a lead role in this episode where her performance is A-plus phenomenal. She's a centre, embodying all the contentment sliding into entropy. The journey is heartbreaking. It's on, a, it's on a par, I think, with the Buffy episode, Body. Plato thought artists dangerous because of their ability to evoke emotion. He'd have this crew in the stockades. You can't get through it without tearing up at least once. Made to suffer the redemptive power of disability in the angel, Catherine Pugh writes about the loss of control in a chaos narrative which makes storytelling, in Fred's case, impossible. She is increasingly affected neurologically, forgetting words and disrupting her sense of time. Fred's world is instantly reduced to pain. The identity and behaviour of disabled or impaired characters, even those who do recover, is transformed by the illness narrative. And so after Fred's death, there's a bridge, in theme only, in the creation of Illyria, which Pugh writes is typical of how disability is portrayed in the angel, as destructive, but also as creative, forcing characters to rebuild themselves for the better. It exposes and magnifies characteristics, destabilising boundaries. Kimberly Morgan and Calvert note Fred's room is floral patterned furniture, patchwork quilts and stuffed animals, 
soft light and its warm red hue creates a womb-like imagery. When Illyria is born, that same comforting warming red hue becomes jarring and ominous when Illyria's bluish features are placed against it. Where Fred moved gracefully, Illyria jerks, insect-like. It's a jarring juxtaposition. The tragedy strikes at the group's heart, leaving them on a knife edge, forever changed. There's a renewed resentment for Wolfram and Hart, but no ability to follow through, only pick up the pieces. 516 Shells deals with the aftermath. They're left to face a new threat, an ancient deity who spells their end. But the first order of business is to follow the team's attempts to fix it. Gone. What, what does it mean that she's gone? Well, in the world of men, a person dies, they stay that way. Unless you're a vampire. Well, the ghost of one that saved the world. Or Buffy. Death doesn't have to be the end. Not in our world. Rules can be broken. All you have to do is push hard enough. Shortly before this episode aired, I was rereading Peter David and Dale Keown's Incredible Hulk. There's a remarkable storyline where a beloved supporting character meets a tragic and pointless death. But her lover thinks, hey, we live in the Marvel Universe where superheroes and regular people die and come back to life all the time. And so he sets out on a quest, talking to every hero and villain with experience, anyone who might have the technology to pull off such a thing. And remarkably, he does. There is no Fred anymore. You don't know that. I watched it gut her from the inside out. Everything she was is gone. There is nothing left but a shell. Then we'll figure out a way to fill it back up. The thing only took over her body is the tip of the theological. It's the soul that matters. Trust us. What kind of experts? What about her? If her organs have been liquefied? Flash fried in a pillar of fire, saving the world. I got better. You really believe there's a chance of bringing it back? Fred's soul is out there, somewhere. We'll find it and we'll put it back where it belongs. Peter David and Dale Keown on the Hulk invest to tell this twist effectively. Stephen S. Knight, who writes and directs here, pulls a rug on the anomaly the characters enjoy as part of this science fiction superhero universe. They give the hard realism of death we face. There is no resurrection in the flesh. There's a lot we might have done. All right, starting with never coming to Wolfram and Hart in the first place. Shells is also a distant mirror to the body, Whedon's phenomenally good meditation on loss. The body taps into sensory tools and minutia to comment on the experience of bereavement. With Shells, Stephen S. Knight doesn't have that relative accommodation of focus because angel characters mourn while mid-drama they look for grief through shock and a world changing rapidly with new obstacles that unhinge them and horrific revelations at burn. Shells has little of the flair of the body or a hole in the world. It's nuanced. It's about going on when you can't because you do. Where hole in the world comes together to save a teammate in shells, everyone falls apart, drowning in their own sorrows and turning on each other. So I signed a piece of paper. It was a customs release form. I didn't think anyone would get hurt. Nothing from Wolfram and Hart is ever free. You knew that. I couldn't go back. To being just the muscle, I... I didn't think it would be one of us. Ross Cavani cleverly describes Wesley as 
the man who learns better, a character whose essence is to lose and yet lose so honourably as to be admirable. Over the course of the show he's gone from goofball prime to die-hard Dirty Harry. Shells is the beginning of his journey through grief to a breaking bad roller coaster level of mental illness, as opposed to meth business. Look, I need you to bury it, Wes. Everything you're feeling, everyone you want to hurt, I need you to put it aside and focus on what has to be done. Hilaria. We need to stop her before she unleashes hell on Earth. Shells is also a story of religion and the criminal classes of making deals to believe in angels and demons, literally, and the cost of that and choices of morality. There are dangers, there are crocodiles, and when these beliefs lead there, Shell is about taking responsibility for yourself and taming mythology, the virtue of acting over preaching. You'd fight for their lives? Yes. Even this one? Is that an issue? Is, is my life in peril, boss? King? You're about as low as it gets, Knox. But you're a part of humanity. That isn't always pretty. But it's a hell of a lot better than what came before. And if it comes down to a choice between you and him, then yes, I would fight for his life. Just like any other humans. These old things should be viewed in the context of the now. They should be given context. The story of Valeria is a sort of angel year one, touching on the intent of resurrection and ensoulment, a curse. And it also echoes Spike's narrative in how he has begun to become a team player and accept his new life. In the puzzle of Valeria, Battis describes a primordial being as a kind of fascist demon princess, completely alone, bereft of subjects, stranded on an alien world, with icy posturing and imperialism writ large. Illyria's effect, Ballas admits, is pure disorientation. She's rootless, directionless, a living embodiment of clinical depression, with her modulated voice and rolling eyes disengaged from everyone around her, a strange fused knot unlocking incomprehension and a sense of exile. She's a living absence, a walking, talking, blue representation of the debris death leaves behind. So Illyria is a being lost in the world. The first chink in her armour is an emotional one. Expecting worship and celebration, she finds grief and disdain and reaches out to victims of tragedy because she has nowhere else to go. She's claustrophobic. The walls limit her. She may open all the portals she wishes, but her being is constantly in battle to reconstruct and strengthen her walls. Kemperley describes the following scene. She is surrounded by darkness with the only illumination coming from the lights of the city, a symbolic representation of the ubiquitous influence of patriarchal control and normative gender expectations. Are you all right? Breathe easier. The walls don't press in as hard when you can't see them. They're still here. Yes. All I am is what I am. I lived seven lives at once. I was power in the ecstasy of death. I was God to a god. Now, I'm trapped on a roof 
one roof. In this time and this place with an unstable human who drinks too much whiskey and called me a smurf. <laughs> Seventeen underneath is directed by Skip Skulnick, written by Elizabeth Kraft and Sarah Fein. It's the final part of Act One. Shells deals with the fallout of the sarcophagus tragedy and Illyria. These episodes still feel irrelevant to me because they're about when shit gets bad and gets worse. It feels more relevant than others in times of austerity and T4, the bulletproof punishing the most vulnerable. Brexit and electoral fraud and COVID-19, a perfect storm, the apocalypse. Bugger. You're fixing to do something stupid, aren't you? The characters continue reeling from penetrating defeat while the world spins on to crush them. Angel and Spike scramble to keep on the ball. Lauren and Wesley spiral into alcoholism. The demigod Leary is frustrated by how the time has passed. I don't suppose you have nightmares. Or sleep or any of that human crap. In my time, nightmares walked among us. Walked and danced, skewering victims in plain sight, laying their fears and worst desires out for everyone to see. This to make us laugh. Well, but you were jolly as frat boys. And now nightmares are trapped inside the heads of humans. Pitiful echoes of themselves. I wonder whom they angered so to merit such a fate. This world must be a terrible disappointment to you. Grievous. I'm not too impressed with it myself. Like Shells, most characters don't have time to react to circumstances. Harmony and Eve are on the run from Adam Baldwin, Firefly's Jane, who makes his angel debut here as liaison Marcus Hamilton. Sharply suit and tied, determined, moving with the relentlessness of a T-1000 on the hunt. The only person sitting still is gone, in a hospital bed, racked with remorse for enabling the catastrophe. When I signed, I knew there would be consequences. And the thing about atonement is, you never run out of chances, but you gotta take them. One of the revelations in the fallout of Hole in the World is the truth behind Lindsay MacDonald, ex-golden boy of Wolfram and Hart, a thorn in Angel's side. MacDonald knows things about the senior partners, the unseen multi-dimensional malevolent deities, things which if shared with Wolfram and Hart's CEO could represent a risk to their control and power. In short, he's an apocalyptically tuned stool pigeon. The centrepiece and underneath is a jailbreak scene which fits in nods to Knight Rider, the Stepford Wives, Hellraiser and a shoot 'em up finale of The Godfather. And there's also medieval gothic challenges evoking the Batmask, early years of Angel. Underneath gets its title from the concept laid out by Lindsay that the apocalypse has already begun, underneath it all, a long time ago. The apocalypse, man. You're soaking in it. I've seen an apocalypse or two in my time. I'd know if one was under my nose. Not an apocalypse. The apocalypse. What, you, you think a gong was gonna sound? Time to jump on your horses and fight the big fight? War's here, Angel. Stacey Abbott notes, the notion of apocalypse shifted. 
away from a pending cataclysmic disaster and towards the daily erosion of the will to fight the good fight in favour of an increasing pressure towards complacency and acceptance. The dominoes continue to fall in origin when a powerful warlock named Silas Vale sends a batch of demons after Connor, Angel's reformatted son. Wesley has returned to work. By way of sorcery, he's oblivious to their connection to Connor when he and his new parents walk into Wolfram and Hart. Small stuff. This is what we do. Or what we're supposed to do. They need help. They seem like good people. All the more reason to get them out of here. We know what this place does to good people. For long-term viewers, this connect to the past is satisfying and dramatic, given Angel's secret deal with the devils. Nonetheless, writer Drew Goddard continues to play with the B-stories around Illyria, who is in little steps drawn to Wesley's side as her guide in this time. There's also more of the no-nonsense liaison Hamilton and the continuing temptation of Charles Gunn. Director Terence O'Hara marks out the contrast between Gunn's torture in black and red hell and the plush silver jacket and smiles of Hamilton, who can end his pain with a simple signature. Hamilton is an immediately impressive character, large and smooth-tongued, bringing the strong, combative style of lawyer performance to the mix. Senior partners and I had a deal. Yes, you did. They took your son, your raging, psychopathic son, gave him a new family, changed his memories, changed everyone's memories, actually, in order to give him a new life, a normal life. And I came to work here. And we couldn't be happier. The senior partners honor their deals. And believe me, they have no desire to upset such a profitable partnership. Vincent Carthizer portrays a side of Connor we've not seen, a striking contrast to his season three and four embodiment of despairing, hollowed youth. He's physically and mentally energized. He can cope with demons and magics. Says are kind of cool, actually. The bags under his bloodshot eyes are gone. Dennis Christopher plays Cyrus Vale with doddering senior vulnerability, yet incredibly confident through lashings of striking makeup. Veal's plan is to draw Connor and Angel into the open to complete a job, the slaying of his competitor, Sajan. Jack Connolly is positively charming as a smart arse, ironic wit, Ozzy Osbourne, Alice Cooper type demon, whose prophecies state he will be killed only by Connor. And meanwhile, there's some great stuff with Wesley and Lauren going through the process of discovery around Veal. Veal listings under accounts paid. Wolfram and Hart to business with him? Yeah, it looks like he was one of their go-to warlocks when it came to the magical mojo. Specialized in memory restructuring, mind control, temporal shifts. Oh, boy. What is it? You could buy Bolivia for what we paid him on this one. Not just him. He supervised some of the most powerful sorcerers on the West Coast. A manpower like that? I'm guessing he wasn't doing card tricks. Some sort of reality shift in it. Huh. What? It happened on the day we took over Wolfram and Hart. This leads us to a tense, edgy finale, where Wes, backed by Illyria, goes head-to-head with Angel. In the middle is Veal's Orlon window, a delicate breathing safe containing the reality of their last three years overwritten with fabrication. And Wes shatters it bring a lot of uncomfortable truths out in the open.
I dreamed that you were here and you were leaving and Catherine was in her car and she was waiting and, and when we started to leave she tried to run me down but you pushed me out of the way and then she hit you and she crashed into a truck and she was killed. Well, there was so much more in Bobby, it seemed so real. There was Sue Ellen and there was Mark and... Was that a clip? I'm pretty sure that was a clip. So, origin. It's about remembering who we are, those moments of clarity, recounting our shame and betrayal, how we destroy our own hopes, things we could have maybe taken back once, but turned away to hide from the crushing responsibility. It's a reintegration then, a search for balance. There are two sets of memories, those that happened and those that are fabricated. It's hard to tell which is which. Trying to push reality out of your mind. Focus on the other memories. They were created for a reason. To hide from the truth. To endure it. The conclusion of Origin pronounces how it affects Wesley and Connor, but also Illyria, contaminated with memory elements of Fred. Ross Cavney in Schrodinger's Angel observes, The restoration of Wesley's memories, which include the extent of his failed attempts to redeem Lila, are part of what breaks him. Angel helps destroy his closest friend. considers these final episodes in terms of whether they are a contradiction. Angel's mission is typically one of redemption and consequence, rather than the quick fix. Kavni posits Gunn, the most like Angel, as having felt the heaviest burden of the quick fix. Rescued from hell by O'Leary, he is the first to confront the Angel over his seeming decision to become entirely complicit with the senior partners. His reversion to the side of good is signalled in part by a return to his personal style and original image. He reshapes his head and adopts a less formal mode of dress. Gunn is tortured and lost. Wes and Lorne are drunk. Only Angel seems to be managing, using his 250 years of knowledge to get business back on track. And as for Illyria, she's confused, confined, and wants nothing more than to be worshipped. This ex-ruler of the world clings to Wolfram Hart because it reeks of power and ambition and influence. Yet because of Wes's proximity and inherent bravery, his intuition as a watcher takes over. Guess Illyria's still the headline around here. Front page news. And a walking obituary. Strange times, huh? Strange times. Have you talked to Wes? Well, we've exchanged words. I wouldn't exactly call it talking. He's still reeling since Our Lady of the Blue Bummer arrived. Yeah, I was just in his office and he was... Oh, God, don't go in there. That's where he keeps his full strength crazy. Yeah, I caught a whiff of that. It's like he's two different people. One is almost catatonic. He's the guy you see doing the impatient shuffle around the hallways, and the other is just cooped up in there all day, jittering like a bug on a hot plate, obsessing over every single tidbit he can find on Illyria. Wesley in his five years on screen as a character has been guardian to two vampire slayers, Buffy and Faith, to Angel and now to Illyria. He's grasped her slither of trust in his guidance and utilised it to harness damage limitation. 
So it's some solid writer thought how Wes, racked with grief, seeks purpose in the plight of Illyria. Alexis Denisov plays a traumatised functioning alcoholic, giving just enough and holding much more back. You can't look at her without seeing. Her body's previous owner. <laughs> but then, what comes out of her mouth? Pure, unadulterated vertigo. We look so tiny to her. But you got her on a leash or something, right? No. <laughs> no. The dialogue, choreography and direction lets Boreas and the other actors fall behind Wesley's leadership as the closest coin they have to dealing with the God King of the Primordium. Each react in their own unique way too. Spike, whose natural instinct is to hit stuff, tests Illyria's skills. There's some really fun scenes in Wolfram and Hart's own X-Men style danger room where Spike volunteers as a punching bag. The shell. You had affection for it. For Fred. Uh, tons. Love the bird. Yet you strike at her form without sentiment. You ain't her. I can see it. Lord knows I can smell it. And I got no problem hitting it. You are adapting. We do that. Adaptation is compromise. It's called learning. But then I guess you know everything there is to know. When the world met me, it shuddered, groaned. It knelt at my feet. Dear Penthouse, I don't normally write letters like this, but... Illyria was all they needed to know. Then came the internet. Illyria is tearing into the stability of reality, beginning with profit margins. And when liaison Hamilton confesses his senior partner's fears around her, Wesley learns Angel bosses don't want her there, or anywhere. She's an unstable energy source not meant for these times and unable to be contained in them or contain herself. She's the embodiment of season five as well as the inverse of season five. A great evil integrated into a band of heroes and in our third episode we get her point of view. We don't sympathise with her but as her own power overwhelms her we get to see her motivations, see her try to adapt. There's little closure here. Throwing all these elements into the stew makes for an episode that qualifies as hard science fiction. Time Bomb is a great experiment in non-linear storytelling which for the most part is a success. Though it's not overt, it's a thematic sequel to Origin, exploring issues of altered perception and cognitive dissonance. It's filled with tension. There's a great vibe of a mashup of X-Men Days of Future Past, Groundhog Day and the Trek Next Generation Close are all good things. Writer Ben Edlund and director Vern Gillum produce a complex work with a clear vision which seeks to balance Illyria's painful domesticity with her deadly abilities. You've been swept up in my wake. This is the holding dimension. How did you worms accomplish this? We didn't. We accomplished what? You ripped me out of linear progression, tore my timeline into shreds and stitched it back together out of sequence. Are you kidding? Caged me in this fractured time frame, in moments that repeat themselves over and over without deviation. 
It's largely Angel himself who's a reactionary focused character here. Head to head, Illyria confronts his place as a vampire with when she ruled, and now as a creature under the curse of codes of conduct and conscience. He is a paradox to her. As Kavni notes, Illyria is a monarch and a general and can tell Angel things about being a leader at this point he needs to know. You are moral. A true ruler is as moral as a hurricane. Empty, but for the force of his gale. But you, trapped in the web of the wolf, the ram, the heart, so much power here. At its price. There's also the B story of a pregnant woman contracting her child over the demons to worship. It works as a cognitive insight in parallel to the story of Valeria's roots. It's largely Gunn's quest not to quit the firm. There's an early years Angel the series vibe to this. Indeed, a Buffyverse scholar whose name I can't remember picks this out as a nod back to a story with a newly ensouled angel saving a baby from his vampire gang, which makes the twist more delicious. Episode 20 is written by Stephen S. Knight and Drew Goddard, directed by David Greenwald, showrunner. The Girl in Question is the weakest episode in this run, given the context. The story appears to have been created for Sarah Michelle Gellar to reprise her role as Buffy, and it was rumoured to be a job she turned down, but neither of these things is true though. We get glimpses of a stunt double and it feels Buffy should be in this, but it's a sneaky trick to place us in the shoes of Spike and Angel and remind us of loss, of absence. It's a tale about their relationships with Buffy and with each other. It's not a bad episode per se, it's just irrelevant to the arc, mostly, and light on story, yet it is also wonderfully light on attitude. It builds on hole in the world and bring together Angel and Spike as ensouled beings in common cause. Their relationship was formed in sadism, has evolved through alpha male competition and bickering, and we see them here begrudgingly recognising their friendship. The central premise sees Angel and Spike in a visual slapstick Italian farce, looking to find a MacGuffin which will prevent a demon mob war, and while they're at it, looking for Buffy in Rome. She's apparently in the arms of their old nemesis, a sort of perfect vampire, their species equivalent of Superman. It's largely about them learning that they haven't moved on from Buffy, and really should do. It's a great showcase for Barry and Oz and Masters' chemistry and comic skills, as well as those of guest actress Carol Raphael Davis, CEO of Rome's Wolfram Heart Branch. Uh, the character is a walking comedic cliché. From her first appearance, Davis is utterly mesmerising in the role. <laughs> you are the very meaning of handsome. You take my breath away. I have no breath. <laughs> and you what an honor. <laughs> the great Angelus. Actually, it's just Angel. Ah, yes, of course. The gypsies, they gave you your soul. The gypsies are filthy people. <clears throat> and we shall speak of them no 
more. I am Ilona Costa Bianchi. I'm the CEO of the Roman offices of Wolframe Art. And please, we are at your disposal. Whatever it is that you want, we give to you. If you want the world, we give you the world. We give you two worlds, in fact, because this is our way. Okay. Good, yeah. Now let's go into my office and we talk like adults. Eh? Come. Pietro. She's just hysterical. And there's more guest appearances, which also crack me up. And flashback fan fave Solus Vampire Girlfriends, Drusilla by Juliet Landau and Darla, played by Julie Baines. The pair have a very special chemistry. Really great fornication. She's glowing, mate. She isn't. Little bit. Best fit you for a pair of antlers. Been made the right cuckold, you have. Time for another pony ride. Son of a bitch! Both of you. He's insatiable. Drusilla, you, you let him touch you? He felt like sunshine. Uh, no, no. That's why he had us tossed, so he could violate. He didn't... Violate on women! Violate in succession! Concurrently. Concurrently? The girl in question is a laugh riot. It would doubtlessly have been well received if placed prior to Hold on the World, but viewed within the not fade away arc, it makes for a jarring tonal shift. On the flip side, it's also gravitas to what comes next. Perhaps it was chosen for economy to fit in the B-plot epilogue to Time Bomb, Illyria coping with age and limitation and the parallels of a way beyond lost lover in her story with Wesley. There's also guest actors in Gary Grubbs and Jennifer Griffin returning as Fred's parents. They have a bubbling, warm, friendly performance, which we watch simultaneously with Wesley, who is pushed even further down the rabbit hole of mental torment. There is a thin thematic bridge forward in seeing Angel and Spike put aside their immaturity, and for Leary and Wes learning their limits. To use a well-heeled phrase, they're manning up in this breather episode. It leads us directly into Power Play and Not Fade Away, the two-part finale. Power Play is directed by James Cotner and written by David Fury. It opens with angels striding through flames to a cavern and a bound and hooded torture victim. He pulls off the man's hood, vamps up and sinks in his teeth. If these last eight episodes are a movie, Power Play opens the final act. The new status quo is beginning to settle. Gone has fresh purpose and Spike who has struck up an interesting relationship with Illyria. She regards him as her pet, but also a fellow outsider who understands the strain of her relationship with Wesley, her schizophrenic guide. Wes's mental state isn't helped by 10-second messages appearing in his high-tech arcane texts. Wesley's craziness is to be expected, what isn't his angels, and how he gives his ear more and more to liaison on Hamilton and their most repulsive clients. This Conley campaign's a juggernaut. That came out of nowhere with his, your home is his work crap. Women voters are eating it up. And they were mine. I had a lock on the chick vote. And now my numbers are slipping. I didn't claw my way up from hell and get installed in a human body just to have some pedophile steal my Senate seat. Wait, he's a pedophile? Not yet. But the public better think he is when you guys get through. Pardon me? How convinced Conley he is. You've got some sort of brainwashing capabilities here, don't you? Drawing on tangents of theme and character, the old Fang gang assemble a series of clues which suggest their leader may be their enemy. 
as viewers we've been given enough to suggest this that only from the conclusion to Time Bomb had it become apparent. Powerplay puts this in our faces from the outset. From there the tension plays up and the conspiracy takes hold. You're wrong about Angel. But I don't think that Saad could end up being a megalomaniacal bastard. It's just if he did. I know it. I feel it. You'll have proof soon enough. A corrupted ruler on such a path sees treachery and betrayal all around him. He cannot suffer intimates. He'll eventually turn against them. I guess I don't have to worry about that, because Angel and me have never been intimate. Except that one. Mark me. He will murder one of you. Actually, he already has. The writers have drip-fed us transactions on senior partner liaison Marcus Hamilton. His dexterity is largely cranial, a business acumen chased predatorially. Hamilton, like Gunn, is a strong derivative in marketing the legal system aspect of the show. It's his counsel that Angel negotiates, in separation from his own management team. That's a portfolio Angel applies following Alleria's own business mentoring on leadership. Now, can we get back to business? Or is there something else? Business. What business are we in, Angel? Do I really have to explain this to you people? We're in the business of business. Oil, software, worldwide wickets. The product doesn't matter, it's the game that matters. Get to the top, be the best, have the most, win. You wanna know the truth? The truth is there's only one of us who ever understood how things really work. Whoa, hey, hey, uh, can I not be the poster child for your nervous breakdown here? You didn't judge. You didn't spend your life obsessed with good and evil. You do that, you get swallowed, lost in the minutia. Good, bad, angel, angelus, none of it makes a difference. I wish it did, but, you know, an ant with the best intentions or the most diabolical schemes is just exactly an ant. The episode renews the investment pledge in Hamilton's Terminator-like debut underneath with a display of more raw power than we've been led to believe. The destruction of Spike's flat acts as a metaphor for the vandalism of corporate power in the everyday. Spike's apartment is of course a place to conspire safely. Spike, of course, was in so little manner closer to choice, whereas Angel was in sold by curse. Spike's flat represents a removal from the trappings of elite excess, pursuing a more monastic path within a minimalist space. It's also meaningful as Lindsay's present to him. In her great insightful essay on Angel and Disability, Catherine Pugh cites Michelle Sagrer West's analysis. Lindsay, coming up from a background of poverty and despair, has learned that the game is all about money and power, and this is probably the first time he's ever looked at the underside of that power and seen that the price paid isn't just monetary. But he knows hunger. He's lived it. He's seen his family house signed out from under him. He's seen self-righteous people like Angel who've had it all, who've come from money and who've had the luxury of morals. Pugh notes that Lindsay is an outsider, having worn Doyle's identity, he subconsciously performs Doyle's role as advisor and information conduit. These people grease the wheels, keep the parts in place, make sure man's inhumanity to man keeps rolling along. I thought the senior partners were responsible for the apocalypse. Senior partners are on a different plane. Down here, 
It's the players in the circle that make things happen. Hell, you, you get tapped by one of them, that's kind of like getting the keys to the chocolate factory. That's why you came back to L.A. Tried to kill Angel. To get into the circle. To be a Blackthorn is to be the senior partner's instrument on Earth. Doesn't get bigger than that. Looks like Angel succeeded where you failed. He doesn't have it in him. Doesn't have what in him? Well, for starters, he's got to give up the champion angle. Quit saving girls in alleys. Probably wouldn't even make it on the circle's radar till he killed one of his lieutenants. Kavni refers to him as the season's little bad, a smooth LA lawyer, but underneath a working class kid with a chip. Innately rebellious, prideful, a complex dual nature that makes him morally ambiguous and talkative to a fault. He delivers insights in the circle of Blackthorn and how to enter it. A lieutenant needs to be sacrificed, which Lindsay likely intended for Angel. Kavni notes wisely this crystallises Angel's final decision what to do with his new lieutenant, not because of anything Lindsay says, but because of what he does not. Did you know? We actually see the insignia of the Circle of Blackthorn on the armoured cyborgs in Lineage, Episode 7. The final scene on Power Play, I think, may be one of the greatest iconic scenes to grace television. That's very strange that I have that opinion because it's a nondescript office set and four guys standing still while another yammers. It's talking heads for four minutes. Well, six minutes in illusion, which is real time if you build in the second part of the scene. Anyway, perhaps it succeeds because of the simplicity, because of David Boreanaz's delivery and a dialogue which is eminently quotable. Do we crawl away at least? We do this, senior partners are ran their full wrath. They'll make an example of us. I'm talking full on hell, not the basic fire and brimstone kind we're used to. We know the drill. No, you don't. 10 to 1, we're gone when the smoke clears. They will do everything in their power to destroy us. So, I need you to be sure. Power endures. We can't bring down the senior partners, but for one bright, shiny moment, we can show them that they don't own us. Something I noticed when I rewatched this scene for the podcast. We begin to cut away as hands are being raised, but there's one person in the scene who doesn't raise his hand. Lorne. We get a brief half-second glimpse in the following episode of her green hand go down, but did it reach his chest? Lorne, did you take that hand to your head? Powerplay does a lot of heavy lifting with Series 5's themes, setting things up for Not Fade Away, the finale directed by Joss Whedon and co-written with Jeffrey Bell. The finale is an intriguingly odd affair. Wrapped in drama, squeezing Angel and his collaborators on all sides, it's filled with quiet moments. Angel's seen with harmony, meditating on their shared deadness. His coolness in regards to the great reveal of sacrificing his rights to the Shanshu prophecy, perhaps mitigating his moralism in favour of Spikes. Angel brings Lindsay onto the team with sound reason for his being there. And in the second act, it's quieter still. With the battle of their lives imminent, the characters take one afternoon for their own happiness. There's rewards here brushing on the show's five-year legacy. It's a lovely section, sentimental, funny, 
poetic. It's not the most memorable part, but it's the most valuable, which Abbott describes as small acts of kindness, personal expression, reconciliation, and the daily effort of helping those in need. I get what you did, you know, and I'm grateful. That's as far as I want to take it, okay? So, what are you working on? I am uh, applying for an internship. I'm supposed to write up a resume. Do you need help? Have you ever written a resume before? Ever? No. But I have very nice handwriting. Girl. Spike, there's his resolution in the integration of the warrior and the poet. Gunn returns to his roots, making a difference in the street, lifting furniture for a homeless shelter. A reprise of the theme of why we fight. This may come out a little pretentious, but one of you will betray me. Wes. Oh, can I deny you three times? The shift in tone comes in Spike's flat, ominous and sudden, where the goodbyes are said. From there, things fall down. We're presented with slow montage action of a kind of Goodfellas Divine Conquer mass hit. Barry Naz as a lead, of course, gets the biggest battle. Andy Hallett, Christian Kane, and Alex Denisov get wild, powerful conclusions to their story arcs. Gee, I think it's just getting interesting. Yeah, I bet you do. You don't trust me. You don't think a man can change? It's not about what I think. This was Angel's plan. Come on. I can sing for you. I've heard you sing. Fuck what? me! Wesley accepts Elyria's illusion in his final minutes as her offer is an outward sign of genuine inward change. According to Amy Acker, Joss Whedon redirected the scene when realising that it wasn't about Wesley's love for Elyria or Fred, but about Elyria's love for Wesley. The final scene is mega iconic, the screams and torrential rain on J. August Richard's shaking head on black and grey. Amy Acker's Illyria is a slithering mess, the briefness of grief, their foes glimpsed briefly like phantoms. Okay, you take the 30,000 on the left. You're fading. The last 10 minutes at best. And let's make them memorable. And in terms of a plan, we fight. Bit more specific. Personally, I kind of want to play the drag. Let's go to work. Questions, questions. It's all about questions, this ending. There in freeze frame, no closure is needed. Closure is not the point. In A Sense of the Ending, Schrodinger's Angel, Ros Cavani muses on how one function of these episodes was the possibility of renewal and how they served to set up a Mad Max style Angel Season 6. That's the central thesis of Cavani's essay. Was it to go on or was it an ending? Uh, she calls Angel's actions here 
an example of what can be called superhero exceptionalism, the idea that superheroes are exempt from not normal considerations and entitled to ignore consequences. The assassination of the Blackthorn is not merely a nihilistic act of defiance, but a way of continuing the mission. I think that's true, but inherently there are deeply uncomfortable moral implications in the message, particularly for those of us coming from a Christian or other humanitarian heritage. We feel those strongly. This sentiment was foreshadowed in the Angel's fever state in episode 10, sole purpose. Kill them all, he says. Wipe them all out. So what would happen if a mass killing spree took out Boris Johnson and Donald Trump's front bench of pseudo-cartoon characters? A bloody savage purge, taking out those in the political and corporate sphere who have enjoyed the fruits of sapping the lives of hundreds, thousands and more others. What would happen if we removed those non-average psychopaths killing with great incompetence without remorse? Would it serve as a lesson for those who remain that some favours come at too high a price? The answer often given is this would create a power vacuum. That may be a whopping excuse and an understandable deference of responsibility. I don't want to go to jail for attempted murder. The excuse poses a question. A power vacuum filled by who? The more humane or the less humane? Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu caused a death of 700 people, 1,200 people, or 60,000 people, depending on the source. He was in power for 15 years, so I think there's certainly a good argument for it being five figures. Arrested by the military on charges of genocide in 1989, the Ceausescus were afforded a quick show trial and executed. For a few years in the aftermath, peaceful demonstrations in Romania fell into violence. Sit-in protests led to elections of democratic parties, which fractured but continued to rule. Industrial and economic apparatus built during the Ceausescu reign of terror were swept away in increasing privatisation in the last 30 years. And in the last five years, political corruption has become an issue again. That's not good. Maybe we could roll a penniless Jacob Rees-Mogg out of a car in the streets of Bucharest. In politics, vote the person who's going to do the least amount of damage. It's a good rule of thumb. But what if our society had a very specific form of capital punishment? The needs of the many. That's part of what Not Fade Away proposes, and I think there's moral weight in the argument, sadly. Of course, capital punishment targeted at these elite mass murderers would need to be segregated from control by the elite mass murderers. How about categories? Political Mass Murder of the Year Award? A HuffPost reviewer called Not Fade Away emotionally, tonally and thematically appropriate for a finale of this show. It's a Hugo Award nominee for short form best dramatic presentation. In Angel's Legacy, Stacey Abbott writes the show gave launch to a subgenre, including supernatural, blood ties, being human, and eye zombie, where the monster searches for meaning to their existence. This final season's addition to the corporate, 
undoubtedly influenced the creation of Whedon's Dollhouse. There's actor casting and story character dovetails with J. August Richards, Agents Shield, Amy Acker and Alexis Denisoff and Much Ado About Nothing and James Masters in fucking Torchwood. Angel's writing crew proliferate in this uh, continuation. For instance, Netflix's Daredevil, a morally pondering superhero lawyer, a lone brooder trying to understand group dynamics. Catherine Pugh notes how its treatment of disability and its ability to empower empathy has influenced Dollhouse, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and The Walking Dead. And that's it for me. Next month I move away from discussions of capital punishment with a tone shift like whiplash. I'll be joined by my good friends from Chatschmatt, Johnny Porter and Neil Stringer and freelance peacekeeping agent Ian Lawler as we talk about Baywatch Nights Season 2. Oh yes, we're going there. I can't wait to tell you all about the mad world of David Hasselhoff investigating reports of the alien and the occult. Hit that follow button so it's likelier to show up on your feed. The Drew and Luke podcast gets a signal boost from Dave Cromie at nerdgeist.com. It's carried on Spreaker, Spotify, Apple Music and loads of other places. The real power behind it are paying customers at my Patreon who justify making the pod freely available. Each month for a tiny coin, they enjoy four to six pieces of exclusive content. There's comics, poems, previews of my forthcoming novel Occupied, as well as handmade bespoke artwork. It's a whopping bargain. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash Andy Luke. Wishing writing listeners a happy NaNoWriMo and all of you a happy Halloween and a glorious political revolution. This is your new home speaking. I know you haven't moved in yet, but I need some favors. Could you dust the blinds? The dust makes me feel dusty. Also, we could save a lot of money if you bundled your home and car insurance with GEICO. It's super easy to do online or over the phone. Last favor, when you move in, could you stick to one aesthetic? The last owner had a weird mix of floral wallpaper and nautical tchotchkes, and I can't have another identity crisis. GEICO. For bundling made easy, go to GEICO.com today. El nuevo Crispy Chicken Sandwich de McDonald's es... Crujiente, tiernito, wholesome. Es pollo en la McDonald's, un mordisco y... Wow. Es el nuevo Crispy Chicken Sandwich. Ordena por anticipado en el app de McDonald's. Pa -pa -pa -pa. En McDonald's Participantes.